And if you would open your copy of the scriptures to Genesis chapter 42. For those of you who are visiting, we have been working our way passage by passage through the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your blessing to be on the reading of uh, your word and the proclamation of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. We are squarely in the middle of the holiday season. They say that uh, visiting family often prompts feelings of anxiety, of depression, and of despair rather than delight. And that reminds me, uh, I need to tell you, I'll be in Georgia uh, this week visiting my mother-in-law uh, Thursday through Saturday right after Christmas. <laughs> um, and I'm kind of playing. <laughs> Whatever stresses uh, lay ahead of you with your relatives, let me give you some encouragement. Your reunion uh, with your relatives will surely be better than Joseph's reunion uh, with his brothers. At the end of Genesis 41, about uh, the, the seven abundant years had ended and the seven years of famine had begun to grip, grip Egypt. In chapter 42, we find that the, the famine was so severe and so widespread that it reached even into the land of Canaan. And uh, Joseph's family is still there in Canaan. And so Genesis 42 begins with uh, Jacob addressing his sons while they are living in Canaan. Uh, look with me at verses 1 through 5 of Genesis 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Uh, so Jacob's sons uh, traveled down to Egypt to buy grain, uh, and in keeping with uh, the dream that God had given to Joseph uh, when they came down to Egypt, um, the, they met their brother. They didn't realize it was their, that, it, that uh, Joseph was their brother. Um, that they had sold into slavery near, nearly 20 years earlier. And they didn't recognize him because Joseph is so much older now. He's clean-shaven. He is a ruler in Egypt. He is speaking Egyptian. In fact, he even has an Egyptian name. But even though his brothers don't recognize, um, don't recognize him, he recognizes them. And when they bow down in front of him, Joseph remembers the dreams that God had given him while he was still a teenager. Now, Joseph was a planner. 
You will remember from last week how Joseph quickly developed the plan for Egypt um, when he interpreted the the dream that Pharaoh had. You know, right off the cuff, he's able to interpret the dream and then develops a plan um, based on uh, the wisdom that God had given him. So here, his brothers come; they bow down before him. They don't recognize him, and immediately off the cuff, Joseph developed a plan on how to reveal himself to his brothers. First of all, Joseph knew that his brothers need to be confronted um, with what they had done to him. So Joseph pretended not to recognize them, and he treated them pretty badly. He accused them of being spies. He questioned them closely about uh, who they were, about their family that was still living in Canaan. And then he threw all of them, all ten brothers, into jail for three days. Joseph is not settling a score with his brothers. He's not indulging in a little vengeance against them. Rather, Joseph is aiming at their repentance. He knows that in order for there to be true reconciliation between himself and his brothers, that they need to repent. And he knows that if he simply revealed himself to them, you know, here they are, they're bowing down, he says, you are my brothers. Well, he's second in command in Egypt. You know, he's got all the the regal authority of the Egyptian pharaoh uh, in his power. And so he knows that his brothers would have said anything necessary in order to appease him. Uh, So Joseph decides he's not going to reveal himself. Rather, what he does is he squeezes them. Listen to verses 6 through 17. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold all the people he was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And they said... And he said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. In other other words, the weakness of the land, the vulnerabilities of the land. Verse 10, They said to him, No, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man and are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, No, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I say to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. Joseph had an absolutely perfect advantage over his brothers. They had, they had no idea who he was, but he knew each one of them 
with, as one of the commentators said, a terrifying intimacy. God has the same vantage point with us. While we go about our lives, God knows us more intimately than we know ourselves. He knows our actions. He knows our plans. He knows our thoughts and our desires. He even knows our motives. And we may be unclear about our motives. God also knows what makes us tick and how we tend to respond to correction because God is the good shepherd of our souls. What He does is He tailors His correction specifically to us and to our situation. Sometimes He is gentle with us. Sometimes He treats us roughly like Joseph treated his brothers. But in every instance, God is aiming at our repentance. That's why I had us read the story uh, that we read in the responsive reading from Matthew uh, chapter 15. The story of the Canaanite woman who begged Jesus to heal her daughter. And Jesus, in denying her, He was squeezing her, figuratively speaking, to draw forth from her greater faith in Christ. D.A. Carson, uh, a theologian up in Chicago, said something like this. He says, One generation believes in something. The next generation assumes it. The third generation forgets it. And the fourth generation denies it. I think Carson's on to something. God squeezes people so that they are not allowed to assume their faith. Um, When he seems like he's making it difficult for people to believe, or when he places someone in a difficult uh, situation with difficult circumstances, he's causing them to exercise greater faith so that they would not rest in a cheap, counterfeit faith. So God's resistance in Matthew 15 where Jesus says to this Canaanite woman, it's not right to throw the children's food to the dogs. What this woman does, by God's grace, because God is at work in her, she latches on even tighter. And she says, even the dogs can have the scraps that fall from the table. And Jesus says, what great faith you have. Sometimes it's tempting to be discouraged when we find ourselves in discouraging circumstances. But God, the great shepherd, is causing, he's aiming at your repentance. He is aiming at causing your faith to grow. He is, he is aiming at you growing up into Christ, who is your head. Also, he wants to keep us from a cheap, counterfeit faith that's a weak um, it's a, it's a, a faith in, in, in word only uh, James says true faith is a faith that works it's a faith that, that, is, that uh, has, has fruit that follows it now we know that Joseph is not motivated by vengeance because once he lets them out or once he lets them out of out of prison after three days, 
Uh, he changed the conditions. Instead of one person going and back to the land of Canaan while the rest stay in prison, he releases all but one. The reason he wants to do this is he wants the uh, the nine brothers to return with as much grain as they can carry because he cares for his family. He knows that the famine is severe. And also, when he observes his brother's guilt, uh, as, as their guilt rushed over them, uh, because they, they discussed in front of Joseph uh, what had happened 20 years ago and how they came, how, how Joseph came to be sold as a slave. And, and Joseph is listening to them and they don't realize that Joseph is able to understand them because they think that Joseph is just an Egyptian. They don't realize that they can understand them as they speak in Hebrew. And Joseph, far from being motivated by vengeance, uh, has to leave the room because he breaks down and begins weeping. Furthermore, um, or rather, to keep the pressure up, Joseph instructed that all the money that they had uh, brought with them to buy grain be put back into their sacks of grain. So listen to verses 18 through 38. I'll start with verse 18 and, and read through the rest of the chapter. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. He's speaking here to his brothers. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified, and you will not, and so and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then they, then he turned away from them and wept. And he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. And Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. This was done for them. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. It is here in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them. And they turned, trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? When they came to Jacob, uh, their father in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man... The Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We are honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more, and the youngest this day is with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man... The Lord of the land said to us, By this shall I know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your households and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. 
Then shall I know that you are not spies, but honest men, and I will deliver your brother to you as you shall trade in the land. And, and as I'm sorry, as they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. When they and their father saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin. All this has come against me. See, Jacob is still a work in progress even though he is a man of faith and has been growing in his faith. Still a a work in progress. Verse 37, Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his father is dead. I'm sorry, his brother is dead and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. With Simeon locked in prison in Egypt and Joseph requiring that they bring Benjamin, the the youngest brother, um, it, it makes you wonder... Uh, or question uh, Jacob's um, qualities as a father. <laughs> okay, Simeon's down there. But you know what? He can stay down there in prison because I am not going to lose my youngest son. Um, but anyway, uh, what Joseph has done by keeping Simeon and requiring the ten brothers are now the nine brothers with Simeon still in, in jail. Uh, to bring Benjamin with him, what he's done is he has turned up the pressure. And most of the pressure that is coming upon them is really from their own sense of guilt. Did you pick that up as we were reading the passage? I want to spend the rest of this sermon considering the topic of guilt and why Joseph was so intent on having his brothers experience it. For over a generation in our nation and really in the world, uh, guilt was a bad word. Sigmund Freud said it was a negative tool, and I'm simplifying him, but basically a negative tool used by parents to keep their children in line. So so the the concept of guilt was uh, viewed as psychologically unhealthy and to be dismissed as far as possible uh, as an emotion. So it was was a bad emotion. We need to get rid of it. Uh, But there's been a reevaluation of the concept of guilt over the past 20 years or so in the the psychological sciences. Psychologists have concluded from their studies that the most unstable and most violent people actually have little sense or no sense of guilt whatsoever. Uh, Sociopaths or or psychopaths are people who, who have no sense of guilt. And so now the psychologists believe that the concept of guilt is very important. And it's healthy, very healthy for one's psychological well-being. It's funny, um, surveying some of the writings of the psychologists as they, as they think they are making these new discoveries. Uh, so you have, an, you have articles entitled, Guilt, Why It's Good to Feel Bad, or Why It's Good to Feel Guilty. 
A New York Times article proclaimed, Guilt is increasingly viewed as a valuable and uniquely human feeling that is essential to social order, moral behavior, and ultimately the survival of the fittest. I'm sorry, the, the, the survival of the species. Uh, as I read this, uh, the statements to me seem to imply that Sigmund Freud and his disciples uh, are partly responsible for all the atrocities that happened in the 20th century. World War One, World War Two, all the the uh, the murders and the genocide of the 20th century. People who are escaping from the concept of guilt now have escaped from moral boundaries and are out killing millions and millions and millions of their fellow human beings without, it seems, feeling guilty in the least. The psychologists now feel that guilt is healthy because it causes us to reflect on our decision-making and helps us to avoid making poor decisions in the future. In other words, guilt helps us find and keep healthy boundaries, the psychologists tell us. It helps us reflect on our past mistakes and to learn from them. Furthermore, guilt helps us look outside ourselves and towards those we might have hurt or offended. All the psychologists, uh, all the psychologists have done, in my opinion, is learn what the Bible has told us all along. God created the human soul with a conscience. Romans 2, verses 14 and 15 says, When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Unfortunately, while the psychological sciences are embracing guilt, many Christians are dismissing it. Uh, admittedly, many people misuse and misapply the concept of guilt. People use guilt to manipulate others. Others get so caught up in, in guilt that they are not able to seek God for forgiveness because they think they are so far beyond they are so guilty that they are beyond God's uh, beyond God's love. Still, others allow guilt to move them from 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 guilt into shame. Shame causes us to hide from our guilt, which is the exact opposite of what God intends for guilt to do. God intends for guilt to drive us back to Him. God intends for guilt to drive us to the Lord Jesus Christ for His forgiving grace. Guilt has this aspect of grace. Shame, on the other hand, is graceless. As Christians, we revel in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. The doctrine of justification teaches us that when we trust in Christ, the moment we trust in Christ, God applies to us the finished work of Christ in our behalf. God places us into Christ. Therefore, 
Christ's death on the cross to pay for sin, to pay the price for our sins, becomes ours. We don't have to pay the price because Christ paid the price that we could never pay. He gives us His benefits that He earned on the cross. He gives us His benefits that He earned by virtue of His perfect life. He gives us His benefits that that are His by virtue of the fact that He is the Son of God. He gives us all of these benefits even though we could never earn them. Even though we don't deserve them. The complete punishment due for our sins has been paid. We will not be punished for any of our sins, whether they be past sins, present sins, or future sins. Christ has also given us the full righteousness of His moral character. When God looks at us, He sees us as clothed with the perfect and complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. In other words, the guilt of our sins, even though we committed them, will not be held against us on the day of judgment. In fact, the moment, the very moment you trusted in Christ, the guilt of your sins, even the sins you are yet to commit, even the sins that lie in your future, They have been removed. God has declared you just. God, the the judge of all the universe, because you're in Christ, He declares you righteous because of what Christ has done for you and has given to you. But He's only done this on the basis of the finished work of Christ for you. That's why Paul can say in Romans uh, chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why Paul can ask in Romans 8.33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? And at the very same time, no, with with absolute confidence that no one, not even Satan himself, can bring any charge of guilt against a Christian. Why? Because it is God who justifies. Now since this is true, doesn't that mean that we should dismiss the concept of guilt? No, not at all. God gave us guilt in order to draw us to Himself. Guilt encourages sorrow. The brothers were speaking in Hebrew and they didn't know that Joseph could understand them. And listen to verse 21. Verse 21, Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen to him. This is why this distress has come upon us. Instead of referring to Joseph as the dreamer, as they called him in Genesis 37 before they sold him into slavery, they now refer to him as their brother. There's a tenderness. And this tenderness is brought on by their sense of guilt. 
the last time they had seen their, jo- their, their brother Joseph, they were contemplating murder and ended up selling him as a slave. Guilt, rightly embraced, has a softening effect. It puts us in a position to receive God's grace. Unfortunately, most people run from guilt. Instead of softening them, it has a hardening effect. They are so intent on their own way that they stiffen their hearts against God's gracious work of guilt in their life. Is there an area of your life where you are hardening your heart against what you know in your conscience to be right? Are you refusing the impulses of your conscience? Are you refusing what you know to be the clear teaching of the Word of God and hardening your heart? Guilt also encourages godly fear. Look at verse 28. In verse 28, uh, he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. And at this their hearts failed them, and they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? This is the first time in this entire episode that one of Joseph's brothers actually has mentioned God. What has driven them to think of God? The fear that has come with their guilt. They finally remember that God is involved with their lives. That's something that Simeon and Levi forgot when they were slaughtering the inhabitants of Shechem. This is something that uh, Judah had forgotten when he was mistreating his daughter-in-law. This was something that Reuben had forgotten when he slept with his father's concubine, that God was involved with their lives. It was something that all of them had forgotten when they sold Joseph into slavery. But the pressure that is being brought on by guilt is making them remember God. You know, most of our sins, if we're truthful with ourselves, are not known to anyone else. We can think simple thoughts, desire things that are forbidden to us without anyone ever knowing that God knows. And He uses the pains of your conscience as a reminder that He knows your thoughts and your actions. A godly fear is something that we should not avoid, but rather cultivate in our lives. Guilt also encourages repentance. 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This is what Joseph wants to bring about from his brothers. He wants to bring about godly grief. He wants to bring about guilt that leads to repentance. Now we're going to have to wait a couple of weeks to see how this works out. But that's the goal that Joseph is driving at when he uses his seemingly harsh, or in their words, rough method. Finally, guilt magnifies grace. Joseph is acting as an accuser and also acting as a judge. He charged them with being spies, and then he threw them into jail for three days. Then he had Simeon, it says, bound in front of them. And he was to be left there 
in prison until his brothers returned with the younger brother. In spite of Joseph's position of authority and lordship, his brothers did not realize that Joseph was acting as their savior. On the great and awesome day of judgment, we're all going to be standing before the judgment seat of Christ. All our deeds, all our words, all our thoughts, all our motives are going to be brought into judgment. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one of us may receive what is due for what he or she has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our sins on that day will bury us. But just like Joseph's brothers, we have a judge who is also our Savior. He stepped in our place. He laid down His life in our behalf. He took the punishment that our sins should have brought to bear upon us. Do you trust Christ as your Savior? You know He is the only Savior. You reject Him and you have no Savior. And your sins will bury you on that day. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank You that You loved us so much that You left Your supreme place of glory, humbled Yourself, took on human flesh, suffered at the hands of wicked men, and then became a sin offering for sinners, taking the full brunt of God's wrath in our behalf, and then rising again on the third day for our justification. Our God, we thank You. I'm reminded of of the book of Hebrews where Jesus says He is not ashamed to call us um, His brothers. Lord, we are much more like the ten brothers than we are like Joseph. But we thank You that we have a Savior that is even better than Joseph who loved us and saved us completely. We pray in His name. Amen.